As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The game plan didn't work. It's not about uh, blaming anything. It's about realizing what we have to do. We have to recover the players mentally, physically. We have to improve them. Me, personally, uh, we have to, to make better decisions. Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Kelly. I'm your host for The View from the Lane, the Athletics Tottenham Hotspur podcast. Delighted to say that joining me on the show today are the Athletics' Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. Let's go straight in on this, Jack. You were there. You reported on it. 3-1 defeat at the Emirates. And the scoreline does, does nothing to reflect the difference between the teams. Let me ask you a simple question. How bad was it? I think it was the worst first half I've seen from t- any Tottenham team since I've been covering the club, I think, which is wow. about 10 years. Um, <gasps> it was, it rem- what it reminded me most of is at the very end of the Pochettino era, or to a lesser extent, the Mourinho era, where you could tell that the messages from the manager were not getting through to the players. The one game that reminded me of most was from that awful 3-0 defeat at Brighton in October 2019. Absolutely. I think James and I were also discussing, you could kind of compare it to some of the last games of ABB as mm-hmm. well. Just in ter- yep. you know, It wasn't just they lost. It was the fact that in the first half, they looked utterly lost. The players had no idea what to do. And while, you know, of course, you can blame the players for that. And yeah, they played badly and they should have played better. But a collective failure like that has to come from the manager. What, for whatever reason, the players who went out on the pitch on Sunday didn't listen or didn't care about what Nuno told them beforehand. OK, I'm going to ask you, James, the same thing. How bad was it for you? You are rather more emotionally invested, like myself, in the, in the result of that game, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as Jack says, I, I can't think of a 45 minutes in a game where Spurs have sort of underperformed on expectation. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you and I, Danny, would have remembered uh, some pretty dismal performances sure. in the sort of d- the dark days of the 1990s. But the expectations then would have been so low that seeing Spurs go 3-0 down to one of the top sides maybe wouldn't have been such a surprise. I guess, you know, mm-hmm. we would say Arsenal were not one of the top sides at the moment, which is maybe makes it slightly different. Um they were just a complete shambles. I mean, I think you know, uh, forget you know, forget being three highly respected football media professionals, quote unquote. Just from watching football for the last sort of 25, 30 years, or, or yeah, maybe slightly longer in your case, Danny. Mm. Um, you know 
when it's not right. And, and as Jack has kind of just mentioned, to say you kind of know when it's the beginning of the end for a manager. Yeah. And, you know, he's mentioned uh, those games at the end, the Brighton game with Pochettino and some of the games towards the end of, or the middle third of last season under Mourinho, AVB, there was that Liverpool one that I think we talked about last week or the week before. Any manager will have, I remember some of the late results under Martin Yol when, you know, he'd been so popular and it had all been going so well, but you could tell when it had turned. Mm. And even some of the results that weren't that bad. Do you remember that 4-4 against Aston Villa? Yeah, when they came back course, from 4-1 yeah. down. Yeah. And it was all kind of quite vibrant and exciting at the time. But actually, it kind of, I walked away from that game thinking there's definitely something not quite right here. And it just kind of feels like, you know, even... obviously maybe possibly with the benefit of hindsight slightly, but even the games they've won this season, with the exception of Man City, we've walked away thinking, well, fine, they've won, but not great. And it's just an absolute shambles, isn't it? It's just an absolute, an absolute shambles. There's no... Uh, they didn't have the things that you want to see a team have in a derby game. And even when, you know, we talked about the 90s, but actually when Spurs went to Arsenal in the 90s, w- when they were way, way worse, a much worse team than they are now. In theory, and they, yeah. And way, way worse than Arsenal. They'd go and then give them a game. And they'd, they wouldn't often come away from Arsenal having been, I think they might have lost 3-0 there once, maybe twice, uh, in you know, between sort of the start of the 90s and the mid-2000s. But generally they'd go, you know, they'd get a draw or they'd lose by one goal and they'd give a good account of themselves. Much, much worse players than the players Spurs have now. But if you look at, I mean, Hoiberg, I mean, Jack tweeted, Jack, unfortunately for him, tweeted before the game, uh, you know, something along the lines of what is it that these Spurs fans who don't rate Hoiberg, uh, what, what is it they're missing? For me, I had like, you know, that thing where you've got like a mate who raves about a player and you just don't see it. Sure. And they're always going on about how great they are and they do all these amazing mm. things and you watch them and you just think, well, I don't see it. No. But then suddenly like they'll do something in a game. And it completely crystallises what that player is all about. And you're like, yes, I buy into it now. And then every time you watch him from then on, you're like, this is the player and I get it. The exact opposite I've had with Hoiberg in this game where I rated him quite highly before. And his performance was so bad, particularly in that first half, where like on a very basic level, he just didn't track the runners or even look particularly interested when Arsenal was scoring those goals. And now I'm just thinking, I get it. I get why people get annoyed by this guy. We'll get on to the blame game in a little while. I got this far. I don't take any notes of the second half. For all I know, Arsenal were deliberately not getting nine so that Spurs would keep Nuno on. <laughs> uh, and, then, and, then, and that's where that's the, the dark place that you get yourself into. Um, I'm not going to... Uh, look, anyone who listens to me regularly on the radio knows I'm not given to hyperbole. I'm given to emotional uh, outbursts, but I'm not given to hyperbole. But I genuinely, I would have relieved Nuno at halftime. I would have said to Hugo Lloris... You take the team talk. Somebody else will go and sit on the on the technical area because, look, we have been very kind so far about these first six games. The first three results means that you had to be kind about them. But we all could see that things weren't right in that football team. And that performance tells me that I can now say in public, I guessed and I knew, small k, when they appointed Nuno Espirito Santu that that was not going to work at Tottenham. He's the wrong kind of manager. Now I know it, capital K. I am certain of it, capital C. And my issue um, is whether Daniel Levy will have the guts and the ability to take criticism in public and peritage, if you like, to say, right, we can't waste a season messing around here. Jack, you, you work closely with the club. Is there any chance that they will relieve him of his duties in, during this season? I would be, I'd be surprised if he's still here at the end of the season. Good, the walls are closing in slightly now. This is good. I think he's undermined. I think he's undermined by the fact that 
He has a two-year contract. He's undermined by the fact that everyone knows he was, what, sixth, seventh, eighth choice for the job in the first place. In that sense, he's kind of walked into the door as a sort of glorified caretaker, really. And that mean, and I think the the real issue with with that is that the players sniff the players sniff any lack of authority and credibility. And I feared watching the game that the players have realised that if Nuno's not going to be here for that long, why should they do? Why would they do what he says? You know, the, this Spurs dressing room have got rid of two far better managers than Nuno in the last two years. So I don't see why they would necessarily put their backs out for this guy. I'm not blaming Harry Kane here because actually I thought he had a, a bit more lively game than sometimes he's had, particularly in the second half. But you remember my question last week, why would Harry Kane take any notice of Nuno Espirito Santo? And I don't think we had an answer to that, you know. Um, let's start with the, the blame game properly then. And then we don't, that was just warming up of our short run-up, just bowling a few off-spinners before we really get up to pace. Um, let's talk about Nuno's part in all of this. Look, first and foremost, if that's if that first half performance is how you're preparing a team and organising a team um, for a, a local derby, then clearly something has gone horribly wrong. And to me, given that nobody played well, the goalkeeper, I would say, didn't have a bad game. Jack, the, the midfield he picked of Deli Alley and Dombele and Hoiberg... Hang on, sorry, you're saying he picked a midfield? Yeah, well, the, the, well, what, what what, was the players in the white shirts in the middle of the pitch? <laughs> what were they then if they weren't the midfield? And yeah, the, the point I'm making is, if he'd picked that attacking team against one of the so-called weaker teams in the Premier Division, you could t- you could see it. But to pick it against teams that, whatever else, and we, we were sort of laughing about how bad Arsenal are, They've not got bad players. And all three of those players played disastrously in different ways, except for one through ball by Dan Blake to give him his credit. What, what, what did you make of the team selection? Yeah, I, th- I thought the midfield was a, was a disaster. And there was a big disconnect between the players that you put on the pitch and what they were trying to do on the pitch. You know, if you're going to have a Dombele midfield, you have to give him the ball. And then instead, all it was Eric Dyer launching it over everyone's head. To, and I thought, why isn't Dombele on the pitch if you're, not, if you're not planning to give him the ball? Similarly, they had the, the, the front three was pushed far up, which I know is one of the, the Nuno things to try and press the opposition. That's fine. If you're going to do that, you're obviously leaving a lot of midfield space there. The midfield have to run to try and make it difficult for Arsenal. And yet, the number of times in that first half, even before Arsenal scored, where Odegaard would get the ball... And he would have literally acres and acres and acres of green space around him, like the size of, you know, the size of a cricket field with no one else near him. It was him. amazing. He could just do whatever he wanted. And I thought, this, just, this obviously isn't working. And, obvi- you know, Deli Ali was completely anonymous. I think this proved what we've always kind of known deep down, which is that Deli Ali is not a midfielder and Depton should not be playing in that role in this system. And then Hoybjerg had a nightmare as well. So it was, from a midfield perspective, it was awful like, I mean we always talk about oh you know the good old days and Dembele and Wanyama and weren't Spurs good in midfield five years ago but Jesus like it was it was so so much worse than anything we could have expected to see in that midfield this had me pining for Winston Sissoko Wait, which I mean uh, long term long term listeners to this podcast will know I was not a massive fan of that that axis of uh, <laughs> calamity but I, I mean at that game I mean you would much rather have had those two in there than what we saw I mean, it's utterly, utterly mad to play like that. And of course, he kind of fixed it at half time. But as you say, Danny, you know, the big caveat is Arsenal are three 0 up, and they know they've got game the game in the bag, and, and all, that. all they have to do is not completely fuck up, and they're going to win the game. So they sat back and let Spurs plod around playing the ball sideways for forty minutes or whatever it was. The upshot of the of the of the way they decide to play long balls 
was that the, the, the while they were still bothered to follow the manager's instructions, Moura and Son and to some extent Ali and Domble were getting beyond Kane. But he, if he didn't win the header or bring it down and play the ball, if he lost the ball, the half the team were forward of the player losing the ball. They dutifully for about 15 minutes did try and get beyond Kane for these long balls uh, usually from Dyer, sometimes from Tanganga. And of course, good pressing teams will always make sure that the less good passers of the ball are the ones doing it. I'm surprised that Sanchez wasn't put top of that list, but there you are. Let's do the round of the three of us here. Deli Ali has to play forward or not at all. Is that now established? Yeah, I mean, I think he's in exactly the same position as he was uh, a year, 18 months ago. Like, like the, the, the role that he's best suited to is not a role that many teams play now and isn't a role that exists in Nuno system so he's basically going to have to be a centre forward or a wide forward because this experiment up to now hasn't worked I don't think he has I don't think he's outstanding enough at the kind of things you need to be outstanding at to to be like a number eight in a a top to mid-table Premier League team two years and six games in uh, six Premier League games into his contract end on belly we all think there's something in there um, I'm wondering whether it's now uh, not worth the candle trying to get it out because it's so disruptive to what you might call the level of organisation, uh, Jack, that Premier League teams have to have at the very least. Yeah, this was so. This was such a frustrating day from an Ndombele perspective because, you know, he's back in the team, he's finally had a run of games, he was looking better. And, you know, if you're going to spend £55 million on someone, you really want them to show up in a big game? And he, for the... Frankly, un- unlike some other games recently, he didn't look like he wanted the ball. Like, he wasn't even showing for the ball. He was a complete anonymous. Obviously, he didn't do, he didn't lift his finger at all defensively, but they were kind of used to that by now. But we, if you're not even getting the upside of Ndombele either, you know, there is no bigger fan of Ndombele than me. But what's the, you know, what was the point of watching him play in that game, having the ball kicked over his head, looking uninterested? I just thought, you know, why not just play Skip or almost literally anyone else? Did you want to give any of the players any kind of out here? Reguilon was all right. Reguilon did fine. I mean, Reguilon did Reguilon things, didn't he? He looked slightly shaky at the back, but at least had like a willingness to go forward. Uh, Hill, Hill was good when he came on. Yeah. But again, you know, you have that caveat of Arsenal being sat in. And I think a player like that will always look much better when uh, he's able to do like step overs in front of nobody. We've talked about the players being in the wrong system because of the manager. What about the players, James, in and of themselves? Did you... It's easy for spectators to say they weren't up for it, their attitude was bad. What about the attitude of the Spurs players? Yeah, it was poor. And I mean, I, I think that that's kind of be symptomatic of what, how Spurs have played in big games on and off for the last sort of two or three years, really, isn't it? Or two years. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't need the manager to tell you this is a big game. You've got to play well and you've got to work incredibly hard for the duration of the match. You know, that should be entirely obvious if you're a Premier League player playing against another big Premier League club. And I and I think some people who listen to this podcast were critical of us last season for sort of implying that was the case with under Mourinho. I don't think that, I don't think we really did say that. You know, players have to take some responsibility for how badly they're playing. And in a game like that where it's such a shambles, you know, if you take Koyberg as an example, like he was completely exposed and that was like a system flaw. But he isn't like a 16-year-old kid who doesn't know what he's doing. He's played central midfield a bit for Bayern, you know, for Denmark in the Euros, for Spurs for a year and a bit now, you know, he's played under good managers, he's an intelligent, football intelligent guy, but uh, for him to go careering up the pitches, he had a few times and leave uh, Deli Alli and Dombele behind him to do the donkey work, I mean, it's just, it's just insane. And that can't all be on the manager, that has to be on Hoiberg as well, right? He, he has to know that's, that's going to be a problem. The times Hoiberg decided to stay back in what you could have called 
from three or four years ago, the Eric Dyer midfield position. When he stayed in station in front of the two centre-backs, the way Spurs were playing long meant they were suddenly in front of Hoiberg. There was occasionally, and I I watched it very carefully, there was at least 30 and possibly 40 yards of pitch between him and the next Spurs player. So that if if the Spurs move broke down, he's too far back then to influence the play either. Um, uh, I, I th- it was a it was a desperately difficult game for him. I'm not I'm not defending him. It's a def- desperately difficult game for him because of the teammates around him, what they were trying to do. Jack, managers always say the players aren't fit enough. Fans always say the players aren't trying enough. Did you think that they put enough effort in? I certainly think the players aren't fit enough. In some cases, that's their fault, and in some cases, it's not. So it's not their fault in the sense that you know Tottenham used to have the best fitness stats in, in the country under Pochettino. Mourinho came in changed the approach to fitness. Now Tottenham have some of the lowest fitness stats in the Premier League. That's been that right? yeah. shown again by distance covered stats that were flashed up on telly yesterday. So clearly the Spurs players are a lot, the Spurs squad on the whole is a lot less fit than it was under Pochettino. And that isn't necessarily the fault of the players. And it's going to be quite, it's going to take a while for Nuno to, to fix that. But some of these things are the, are the players' faults, mm. you know. The Dubrovnik three, we've talked about them. They obviously put themselves out of action for a while by going off to Argentina to play those games. Kane and Ndombele both messed up their own pre-seasons by trying, to force, by trying and failing to force moves away from Tottenham. And, you know, then, and there's other instances of you know, players who were injured came back quickly, like Dyer and Son. And that, you know, in those cases, I don't think it is the player's fault. But there's a lot of blame to go around today. But I do think that the fitness and application of the players should also be you know, up for... Uh, should also be kind of contested. Like, it's not just the manager. What should we read into the fact that Spurs have signed four players over the summer? Oh, five, including the guy who's on, uh, Saar, who's on loan, obviously back in France and Mets. And all four of those players started that game on the bench. So you're two months into the season, two months into the Premier League season, you play a big derby match against your local rivals and none of the four players you've brought in over the summer are in the starting lineup. And I don't think any of those four decisions, I know some people think Romero should have played and maybe that's the debatable one. But the others, I don't think anyone's like banging down the door for Emerson Royale to play. Or for, again, I know Hills come on and move the benefit of sure, hindsight. You know, it's easy to say he should have started. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you've got you've played Son and Lucas in those attacking positions, right? I mean, you're probably not going to start him in that game. It'd be mad. Uh, the answer, answer to your question, I think, is that um, when we were grading at the start of the season in the podcast the transfer window, I think we may have been. I certainly, I'll admit to myself, I was blindsided by the relief that they hung on to Kane. A relief yeah. which I have to say I still, I still have. Um, but uh, we were slightly blindsided. So much emotional energy was put into the search for the manager and the, the, the effort to keep Harry Kane that I think almost any, you know, getting one or two of the sort of Deadwood players off the books, bringing some players in was seen as somehow good. But I'm not sure that, and we'll talk about Perecci and Levy and their part in all of this fiasco, one long-term, one short-term, uh, in a second. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't understand why Romero didn't start. Is he a better footballer than Sanchez? Unless it was a fitness thing, then he probably is. Jack, I'm not a, I, 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 I like statistics. I think they, they are indi- indicators. One can always go too far with them. But, I mean, the ones that obviously stand out now is that by James just mentioned it, or you mentioned it, their running stats are, I think, the worst in the Premier League. By every other useful measure of attacking prowess, they are the worst team in the Premier League after six games, and they're conceding three goals a game. I mean, you won't always be playing Manchester City or Chelsea, but those those numbers, if you were to add them, give them to an eight-year-old child, you say, oh, they must get relegated then, mustn't they? 
I'm not suggesting that they're going to get relegated, but they're pretty rotten, aren't they? Yeah, they're really awful. They're kind of unspinably bad. And they just really undermine the fundamental case for Nuno, which was, you know, maybe he's not a long-term guy. Maybe he won't rebuild the club. Maybe he won't even play as good football. But you know what? After all the turmoil of the last few years, at least he'll give stability. And yet that that's proven to be a completely false promise because they're playing really, really badly. And there's no stability in losing 3-0 every week. So, yeah, it's it's pretty worrying. And it makes you... It doesn't feel you full of confidence that time alone will be able to solve this. And that if you give Nuno six months, a year, two years, whatever, that he would make the team much better. It's not like he's trying to instill a philosophy that like you can buy into in the longer term, is it? It's not. It's not like it, at the start of Pochettino or even AVB, where like they're trying to play in a slightly different way to how they played under the previous manager, and you you can see the seeds of it, and you know it's gonna it's gonna be a difficult thing, and it's not gonna happen immediately, and it's gonna take time to get there. The way you know the way Nuno is seems well seems to be trying to get the team to play actually feels like a regression from what Mourinho is doing. And like, why why would you sit around and wait for that to work? Why not go and find someone who's going to do something way more expansive, way more exciting, far more in keeping with the DNA of a club that Daniel Levy claimed to find so important uh, in April or May? It's that statement about the DNA that it, that it was rearing its really ugly head. I don't know I don't know which end of the body to make the analogies with because people say it rears its ugly <laughs> head and it bites you in the ass. Um, I'm not sure which way to go with this, but to appoint a manager who's Let's be honest about Nuno now, and uh, let's be honest. He put together a team at Wolves that was put together for him by an agent who were playing in a league below which most of the players should have been on the understanding they would all get renewed contracts when they got promoted, and that all happened at Wolves. Once he was in the Premier League, um, you can't take away that those players got them you know, into the upper half of the table a couple of seasons, but they didn't. They gradually got worse and worse and worse. I can't bring myself to say how disappointed I was when he was appointed and nothing has changed since then and Tottenham knew this you know Tottenham rejected the idea of appointing Nuno before they eventually appointed him at the time the people that were making decisions said that no he wouldn't really be he wouldn't be the right fit because of the style of play and yet he ended up getting the job anyway which just shows that you know the kind of fact that Tottenham couldn't really deliver on this Tottenham DNA promise I mean it is mad that he has basically like done the full AVB like 18 months of AVB, he's crammed into about six weeks. He's gone from being like, you know, everyone's saying he's a good man, saying the right things, having kind of fans who were kind of worn down by the, the by the previous manager eating out of the palm of his hand almost immediately, even though the previous guy was like, you know, way more charismatic as that would have been Redknapp and Mourinho. You know, he got the team functioning well, winning results up towards the top of the league, and then suddenly it just changes and it's all unravelling. And you're sat, sat there watching this team thinking... This guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy can't organise a team. And it just looks like a complete shambles. And we talked about that Liverpool game at White Hart Lane a bit earlier on. And again, that first half performance was like that, wasn't it? It was just like a, a massive chasm in the middle of the pitch. And you just looked at it and thought, how can he possibly have set this team up like this and not realise this was going to be a huge problem? And it's just the, you know, the same thing you can just tell it's not working and you can just tell it's only going to get worse. I feel like we're living in we're living fast forward. You know, with Mourinho, we got the whole three year cycle in seventeen months. With Nuno, we've got a um, we're there, dude. We're there in six. It's taken six league games, <laughs> and it already feels like oh my god, it's like the last days of the era. And if you want to be more rational about it, um, James, you run an editorial team uh, there at the Athletic. I've run teams as well. Everybody uh, who's ever run a team eventually gets to know that whether you go into a thing that's functioning brilliantly 
or whether you go into a thing that's problematic, we all know that for the first six months, you are the solution to the problems. After that, you're part of the problem. We are three months into Nuno being at Spurs. He's halfway through his time of being part of the solution. It's like a, 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 a relationship, isn't it? You can sit in the same room, you can be in the same bed, but once the relationship is broken, one of the two people in that bed know this is over. They don't say it necessarily for months or years, but they know it's over. And I know it's over. Those players are not playing like they expect to be in that bed for much longer, are they? They're already looking for the couch or local hotel accommodation. Let's come when we come back. We'll have a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the short-term involvement of uh, of Fabio Paratici, Don Fabio's people used to famously call him, and Daniel Levy. We'll talk about that in just a second here. On the view from the lane, you'll listen to me, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook, and James Moore. There's anger, and there's also sadness. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Daniel Levy has done various things. He's made the club very valuable, certainly in, the, in, in, in world terms. He's got them invited to the Phony Baloney European Super League. Um, he's built the most beautiful stadium. And the irony on Saturday night of seeing that extraordinary edifice lit up for the boxing, followed by the bullshit that was presented to us at Arsenal a few hours later. And I know plenty of fans of Newcastle United and Derby County who would swap him in a heartbeat. But on Sunday night, he cannot sit there watching that first half performance, surely, and not question what he's been doing to oversee the decline of a club that the manager before last, Pochettino, told him on the pitch needed renewal and he ignored him. Yeah, I think the big question really is how much involvement does Daniel Levy now take back in football decision-making at the club? Because in the last few months... He has been true to his word, which is that he would take a bit of a step back from day-to-day football duties. So Fabio Paratici really is in charge of running the day-to-day things at the training ground. He's the guy who speaks to Nuno every day. He's the guy overseeing transfers and contracts and that sort of thing. Whereas Daniel Levy is now a bit more in the background. And that means that Daniel Levy, I don't think, speaks to Nuno as much as Paratici does, for example. But Mm -hmm. I, I wonder at what point Daniel Levy thinks, you know what, this has gone... This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what this isn't what I agreed upon. And at what point he then, you know, brings tries to bring somebody else in, a different manager, or maybe clashes with with Paratici about that. I'm, you know, I'm kind of speculating a bit here, mm, but yeah. that's one of the big. That's going to be one of the most in- interesting dynamics I think over the next few months. James, are you one of those who've been ending all your recent tweets with hashtag Enoch out, or because um, <laughs> of course they're not going anywhere until they get a vast amount of money. Um, that they want for the club. And there's the, there's the issue, isn't it? The club is now so valuable because of its facilities, its reputation and its revenues that it's almost impossible for, for anything but the most extraordinary wealthy to buy it. But the people who own it and who have it at this huge valuation aren't prepared to spend the money to maintain it on the pitch. Where, where, where do you think Levy is? 
I mean, you say that, but I, I, actually, in uh, in researching for the pod last week after the Chelsea game, and I didn't actually mention this last week. In the end, we didn't get around to it. But I I, I did a little bit of digging uh, using transfermarked.com, mm. uh, and since. Uh, the summer of 2018, and it, my marker here was when Spurs had beaten Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and then finished above them at the end of 17-18 season. Yes. Um, Spurs net, and I know that's a contentious thing on the internet these days, yep. uh, Tottenham's net spend since the summer of 2018 is actually higher than Chelsea's. Yep. And in that time, Chelsea have gone from finishing outside the top four to winning the European Cup, and Spurs have gone from being sort of title contenders to a team who we think might not even qualify for the Europa League this season or for two seasons in a row in fact so I don't think I don't think what they've spent on players has been the biggest issue I'd say it's been more what they've spent that money on and or how that has then been used because you know if you look at it you know, he talked about Ndombele being a £50 million player. Lo Celso was a sort of £30 mm-hmm. million player. Sanchez, admittedly, this is slightly before 2018 yes, sure. and 2017, but Sanchez was like a sort of £35-40 million centre-back. Aurier cost about £25 million, I think. So actually, since that sort of peak Pochettino team that we all remember from sort of 2015 to 2017, that, you know, were in a tight race with yeah. Leicester and then had the unbeaten season at home with White Helene in the last year there. Like, they have replaced a lot of those players. They've spent a lot of money trying to replace a lot of those players. I think they've just made a lot of bad decisions or then those players haven't worked out. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I'm not suggesting they couldn't have spent more money and they couldn't have spent money more wisely or at a better time because they definitely should have been spending in 2018 when they didn't spend anything, when they were in a strong position to improve and then push and develop the team. And, you know, maybe that would just be kicking the can down the road and we'd be having these problems in two years' time rather than now. I, I wouldn't argue with you about, at all about the, about the, about some... The, the, the quality of players they brought in or their failure to replicate their, their known quality in a Spurs team. Chelsea, of course, is is the uh, uh, the exception that proves I mean, they've sold Hazard for 100 million quid. Well, I mean, and, they've and, got all these academy players. And, that and they, sell, the, they well. sell their fringe players for extraordinary money. Tammy Abraham, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Kurt Zuma, etc. They are an amazing... They spend a lot of money on their academy. They, they're, they're players you've never heard of are earning 20, 30,000 pounds a week in Chelsea's youth team. Um, but... They get their money back when they, they sell them on to other clubs and they've been remarkably successful at that. But it doesn't take away from the fact that um, Spurs, has ha- Spurs haven't recruited very well. Social media, Jack, is, is it, we know it's its own mad little world, uh, a hypersensitive ecosystem of pain and, and, uh, and expressed agony. And yet the, the hashtag Enoch out keeps coming up and up and up. But that's the most impotent thing going because, you know, Fans don't no longer have any control over that sort of thing. They're not going to stop going. Yeah, and I don't think Daniel Levy would sell the club because Tottenham fans want him to. You know, I think it is in the long-term Enoch plan for the club to be sold eventually for the right price. And obviously Daniel Levy has his you know fairly high expectations of value based on that story that Matt Law did in the Daily Telegraph at the weekend. But he's not going to... He's not just going to walk out because Spurs fans are annoyed with him. You know, they've been... You know there were protests sort of only less than six months ago about the about the Super League and all that, and there have been protests in the past. For example, you know the attempt to move to the brief attempt to move to Stratford ten years ago. So, but I don't think Levy's going to be kind of bounced into anything by by the fans not wanting him there. And until you know the right sort of person shows up with you know slightly more or less than three billion pounds then it's going to remain an Enoch property. And what about um, Don Fabio, James? A very high profile when Spurs were winning the games, both jumping off the bench yeah. and constantly staring at his phone. Rather less conspicuous at the Arsenal the other day. 
Yeah, I was going to say actually that that, that uh, the sighting that Charlie had before the Palace game is actually the last I've like heard of him. He's got being, home, he? being at a game. I mean, yeah, he's <laughs> not. I'm not seeing him since half time in that Palace game. Yeah, well, like as I said before, look, you know, they signed four players over the summer, uh, and none of them could start in the North London derby two months into the season. So that's not it's not a ringing endorsement, is it? I mean, obviously, you know, you have to be realistic and say that these things do sometimes take time mm-hmm. to work out. Look, we know a, a major rebuild of a squad was needed, and. I would argue that... Well, look, we talked about it the week we talked about the, the transfer window mm-hmm. at the very start of this month, that we felt they needed another creative player and another goal scorer, and they didn't bring in any uh, sort of established attacking player, and that's really what they needed. You know, we don't know what Hill is going to be yet. You know, he had a very yeah. good cameo yes. yesterday, but I'm, I've still seen teams that worry me, the fact that he barely ever gets his head up to see who's in the box for starters. And that feels like a bit of a punt, that one. And I just think like they needed to go out and make a bit of a statement and sign someone with a bit of clout. And you know, there are players in leagues across Europe who were available probably mm-hmm. because so many clubs are in desperate need for money at the moment. They weren't especially ambitious. You know, they've gone out and signed a right-back who, you know, as you say, started the game on the bench. It's pretty damning, actually, that the right-back that they originally were going to sign obviously ended up going to Arsenal, Tommy Yasu. He would have cost half the money. And he, is, one, started the game, yep. and two, had a very good game. And you think, well... You know, could they have got him for half the money and then spent some of the money they've spent on Emerson Royale on, you know, an attacking player who's going to make the difference at the other end of the pitch? I mean, look, obviously, this is an, incre- you know, this is an incredibly early reaction to transfers. Yes, And we course. know from experience these things do take time to pan out. And in two years' time, we could be listening back to this saying, oh, this idiot said yep. Tommy Astor was a bit of an Emerson Royale. I hope that is the case. I hope people are tweeting me abuse for this in two years' time. Um but I just not I'm just not convinced by any of the players they've they've signed. You know, they haven't even spent the money on Romero yet. Bear that in mind. You're like Romero could be six out of ten this season, but then they're gonna have to spend forty odd forty five yeah. million pounds, whatever it is, in the summer to get him in next season, which is obviously gonna decrease the chance of them signing a a playmaker or a wide forward or whatever else they need. So you know, I I don't think they solved too many of their problems really in the summer. I, I don't, you know, I'm not. This isn't to say any of the signings they made were bad. I, I just don't know. Yeah. But I know that they didn't do something that they needed to do, and I think that's the, that. That's still the biggest problem. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods.
having exercised our anger, sadness, the other stages of grief and madness, less so you, Jack, because you're trying to keep a clear eye on this whole thing. Let me kind of philosophize a bit and move this into a wider thing about the Spurs fans and any fans. Are we all just, here we are, six games in, and I, a not stupid man with a lot of experience of professional football, would have relieved Nuno at half time. Are we all just too impatient, Jack? I mean, every club's fan seems to be in a state of semi-permanent froth at the moment. That's definitely true. It's definitely true to say that fan, I think fans are more fans are more impatient than they have been in the past. I definitely I think that's probably probably to do a lot of things. I think at the top end of the game, a lot of it is to do with ex- inflation expectation, which I think you can link to ticket prices is a, is a mm-hmm. factor, I think. Yeah, uh, which definitely. naturally makes fans think they're entitled to entertainment, competence, effort. Oh God! You know, <laughs> uh, I definitely think fans have higher expectations. That's a low bar, that isn't it? Come on, I'm paying nearly a grand. Like Jack. More... Competence and effort for a grand. Yep. Come on. Well, it's true though. Like fans do. I know. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you, but it's mad that we even have to have yeah. that conversation. Yeah, if you go and see Kingstonian, if they're shit, you don't. You're not. You're less annoyed about oh, it. Yeah, of course. Than, well, Kingstonian in the top of the league, mate. So we're not having yeah. that conversation. Are we? And if and if I used to forgive Terry Naylor, there's a name for the teenagers. Mm. I used to forgive Terry Naylor, who couldn't take a corner to save his life because he was on probably twice the average national wage. Now, when I see somebody who's on two hundred grand a week, Giovanni, who can't take a corner past the near post, I am apoplectic about it because I expect him for that kind of dough to be able to get the ball into the centre of the goal. I mean, social media has added to all this. But I'm going to ask the Spurs question now. The high water mark of all of this was probably the team the year before the Champions League final because they were a really, really good football team and didn't get, didn't get it over the line. The Champions League, I think, was probably the tide was going out. But let's talk. The, the Champions League's good because it is, it's a really clear place to work from. Are our expectations just far too high? I'll give you my own feeling about this. I, I, I have huge expectations that they're going to play some good football. But when people do this thing about, oh, he never won a trophy, you've got to win a trophy. You don't got to win a trophy in England. When you play professional football in England, check the Deloitte's figures. You are, at the start of the season, up against, let's say, let's take, let's take Leicester. Let's take the Spurs out of it. You are up against, you are one of the top 20 richest clubs in the world. Great. You have got another 11 of those in the same league as you. England is a brutal place to play football, which takes you back to, to your £1,000, James, and the least they can do is provide you with effort and entertainment um, because you can't guarantee to win. But what about our expectations as Spurs fans to bring it right back to the nub? Are, are, we, are we off a cliff here now because, because we once reached the Champions League final? To be honest, having said all that stuff about, about money and social media and whatever else, I actually think it's the Champions, the existence of the Champions mm. League. That has driven people crazy so much. Like it's either it's like it's like a new division, isn't it? It's like you have to be in this to for your team to have any kind of credibility among other people. It's like that, you know, Thursday night Channel Five chant that people used to enjoy so much. If you're not in the Champions League, you're nothing. And you know, we talk about a big six in the Premier League, but there are other very good teams as well. Uh, Leicester, who haven't had a great start, but we Aston know are a good Villa team. We have a lot of very good players. Aston Villa look look really good. West yeah. Ham. Painfully, West Ham sure. look very good. As we speak, Brighton can go top of the table. Brighton can be top of the league yeah. by the time you listen yeah. to this. So, you know, it's an incredibly competitive division and Spurs have done incredibly well to get into the Champions League for four years in a row or, or whatever it is. But I think 
I, I just think that, that that the existence of that thing and and people not feeling like their team are part of it on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night drives people mad. And, and there is and there's an, an, an illogicality that I don't object to, but it's a fact, isn't it? I used to say it um, on my radio show a lot that I stopped saying it because you don't want to be rep- repeating yourself. But happily, I feel I can't repeat it here. If you were, if the Champions League was a proper meritocracy rather than a geographically uh, based invitational event, which is what it is, um, the top ten teams in England would all make the group stages. You know, if you had a proper qualifying yeah. tournament, the top ten, maybe twelve teams in England would all make the group stages. They would beat. So what you want? A- a straight knockout like the they, FA Cup every single club in Bruges, Europe. They wouldn't they? That's, that's the point I'm making. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, so you have this thing where you know, if you're a supporter of, let's say, Aston Villa, you know you're watching a really good football team, but the thing that everyone aspires to, as you pointed out there, Jack, uh, James, rather, is, is beyond your possibilities because of the other teams in your league. The problem here is basically like the number one problem with football in the last 20 years, which is financial stratification. It's financial stratification driven by, you know, the vast range in ownership models and the fact that City, PSG and Chelsea are fundamentally playing a different game from everyone else. Now, the financial stratification in England is so much now, like Spurs have what, the sixth, seventh, probably biggest wage bill Mm -hmm. in the Premier League at the moment. Whether Spurs fans would be happy with Spurs performing to that level and coming sixth or seventh is probably a question for you two. But clearly, it the stratification means that fans want their team to be performing at a higher level than their, than their budget would suggest. Only under Pochettino did they make this work in that they could basically compete at the Champions League level but with the Europa League budget. And now that obviously Pochettino is not there and they've got a worse manager in charge and they're competing more or less as you would expect them to do, or even not as well as that, with the money they're spending, then quite naturally Spurs fans, Spurs fans still want them to overachieve. And it's, that, it's bridging that gap that I think is the, real, is the real challenge. Does the financial reality of the Premier League now, given that City, Chelsea, Manchester United have to spend so much more money than Tottenham, does that make you more sympathetic to Daniel Levy in the sense that He's compete, you know, he's he's kept Tottenham's head above water in a financial landscape. A mixed metaphor here in a financial landscape that is so different from the one that it was when he bought his stake from Alan Sugar twenty plus years ago. And you know, you can't short of being if it comes down to a choice between being owned by the UAE or Roman Abramovich, or sticking with Enoch and knowing that you're not going to be able to spend the money to compete with City and Chelsea. I'm just interested in what what Danny and James think on this particular point. I think, first of all, I hope earlier on I did give him credit for some of the things that he has done. I wonder whether any project after 20 years, the person in charge may become stale or I'll put it another way. It has been my experience from the tiniest bits of industry and personal relationships to watching great men do their thing. And that is this, people who are hugely successful and people who are utter failures never change their mind. They always think they're right. With the case of failures, it's someone else's fault. With people who are super successful, like Daniel Levy has been and is, he can't change his mind or see the landscape any differently because it's worked for him. The answer to your question, Jack, rather than a bit of of off-key thinking, the answer to your question is, um, I think Spurs is a big enough social and sporting institution to try and be ambitious and to compete. Liverpool had an unpopular owner but found a way through the right manager, correct investment in the team to compete. I don't want to be owned by a nation state. I don't want to be owned by a nation state with dubious human rights 
records and things like that. I would, I've, I've been arguing with Newcastle fans on the radio about this. How can they really, really want their wonderful old club to fall into the hands of the Saudi royal family? I don't want that to happen. Um, but I don't think it's illegitimate to dream and certainly not to dream of something better than I saw this weekend. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, you know, it, it ultimately comes down to what you want your football club to be. Like, if like winning Premier League titles and European Cups is like the be-all and end-all for you, then maybe you are going to want that. But if a club means more to you than just like winning trophies, and you know, I'm sure if any non-Spurs fans were listening to that, they'd be laughing because what trophies? Sodom. Um, then you'd <laughs> you'd want like. You know, the old fashioned, like the local butcher running the club, like would have happened in the 1950s or whatever, you know, putting all his money in from selling tripe and mm -hmm. whatever else. Um, I, I'm not sure any butchers these days could uh, could afford to fund a Premier League football club pushing for Champions League qualification. But uh, I, I just think it's, you know, they've got this massive stadium now, which in theory should be able to make them a lot of money. It kind of feels like once you've gone so far and you've got this close to being in that group, even if they are, you know, on the grand scale, miles away, they're still way ahead of all the rest. They should be in a position where they can occasionally sort of have... You know, look at someone like Atletico Madrid, say, in Spain, where, like, they've been outside the TV money for ages because it's all been going to Madrid and Barcelona and it's just completely skewed the whole way that thing works. But they've still managed to win the league title, what, twice in the last sort of six years or whatever it is. You know, been to two Champions League finals as well. So that's probably they'd be the kind of club you'd look at, and Dortmund, I suppose, to an extent as well. They're not they're not getting anywhere near as much money from commercial stuff and TV as as Bayern, and they're losing their players to them constantly. But yet they're still, you know, deemed to be a successful club, despite the fact, as you said earlier, Danny, they've not won a league title for a decade or longer. So there are big clubs in Europe who we deem to be huge clubs that that I think Spurs could measure themselves against more fairly. And more sensibly than Man City and Chelsea. And what what do Atletico Madrid and Dortmund do that Tottenham don't do? They sell their players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why have Atletico managed to to play intense, physically draining football under Simeone for eleven years without going stale? It's because they sell the players every year. You know, why why did Dortmund manage to attract the best young players in Europe? Because they know that if you do well for them for two or three years, they'll sell you to an even bigger and richer club. Whereas Tottenham's so much of why Tottenham are rubbish now, or not as mm. good now, as they were a few years ago. They are rubbish, mate. It's, it's okay, you can say that. We're not and, offended. And we've done this before, but it's worth repeating. So much of Tottenham's struggles is because they don't, they've struggled to sell players. You know, Pochettino wanted them to sell all the players, and, they didn't, and then Daniel Levy didn't sell them. And if they had sold Delhi and Ericsson and Toby and Dyer and all the rest of it, then I think they would have, you know, they would be able to buy better players, and maybe Pochettino would still be there now. I don't know. But the point is that. Those, like, if you're not at the very top of the food chain, you have to be able to sell your players in an effective way, and that's what Tottenham failed to do. I mean, the other thing with that is obviously Atletico two or three years ago did have like a bit of a lull, and it did seem like you know Simeone was yesterday's man, and he'd be on the way out. But they persisted with him, as you say. They sold players, started again, rebuilt the team, and then they won the title last season. They recognised as well that they had a genius in charge of the club, um, and he is still. Although he's two and a half years, I think, into his latest contract, he's still the highest paid manager in the world by a large chunk. I knew when we started this that there would be lots of identification of problems and very little um, coming up with solutions. But then again, we're not paid to be the ones coming up with solutions. That's down to Don Fabio um, and Mr. Levy and indeed the manager, none of whom at the moment is in the good books. Um, I'll end this program by saying um, that at the start of the month, we said that the the mood about how Spurs' season was going would be dictated <laughs> by the result um, 
uh, at Highbury. I still call it Highbury because because that's where I'm from. The mood is. I noticed. That, I noticed that James, you're sitting in a room where we can hardly see your features. You've decided to sit in a darkened room for the remainder of the season, have you? Yeah, yeah, for for the time being, at least. Yeah. Here's the big task, and Jack, you follow the club very, very closely. Give us a, a, a note of optimism to end this with. The players are going to get more fit. They'll get. They're not going to get less fit over the course of the season. And they, Kane and Son, will score more goals than they're scoring at the moment because <laughs> Kane will better. score more than zero yeah, goals because they're just better players than that. So it's, um, you know. They will play better than they did last Sunday. That's all I can say. Thank you very much, Dr. Pangloss, there for the absolutely <laughs> optimistic outburst, a volcano of hope for all of you listening to our voices. Listen, I hope we've done some kind of justice without just losing our minds to what was a terrible result at the weekend. You know, we say we go again. I'm not sure they will go again. Um, but at least, as Jack says, they can't get any worse. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber, you can hear all of hear and read all of Jack's articles on Spurs by going to athletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Uh, right now, you can sign up at a 33% discount on a full subscription. Uh, I say I want to thank Jack and James for the last uh, 40 minutes or so. We'll be back on Thursday. Hopefully, spirits will be slightly lifted. See you then. The Athletic. <laughs>